Another day is here, and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDIC. Hello and welcome to the Game Theory Podcast. I'm your host, Sam Vecini. We are presented by The Athletic today on the show. Mark Schindler is in the building. We're going to talk about a terrific Warriors-Lakers game one that featured a number of really interesting adjustments back and forth that featured some interesting strategies that I want to break down and that featured absolutely bonkers things occurring throughout the course of it, including a final 29-foot three-point attempt from Jordan Poole that I think only Jordan Poole thought was a good idea on planet Earth. So we're going to talk about that. Oh, also Tyrese Halliburton thought it was a good idea based off of the clip that's going around from the Watch Along show uh, that happens on Twitter every night. Then we're going to talk about Nick's Heat, which was a weird game that did not feature Jimmy Butler. That was an incredibly well-coached game by Eric Spolstra. I want to dive into some of the sets that Spo ran throughout the course of that game. Uh, I had to do it. I apologize, Mark. I know that uh, you were not looking super excited to do that with me, but we're also going to talk about RJ Barrett, which is something that I know Mark is super excited about talking about because RJ has been really, really good over the course of this last little playoff run. Finally, we're going to talk about two newsy and notesy kind of things that occurred over the course of today, including the fact that Dylan Brooks will not be a member of the Memphis Grizzlies next year, according to my colleague over at the Athletic Shams Sharania, as well as the fact that Joel Embiid is the league's MVP this season. Uh, and some of the reaction to that, which I hope was mostly just positive, uh, because Joel deserves to be a league MVP. I don't think that anybody can argue that but they will. Mark, what's going on, buddy? Uh, today was a long day. Um, it's been a good day, but yeah, the final fourth that, that fourth quarter, like I, I think we had two really good basketball games today, um, but that fourth quarter was, was why we stay up for games. Um, that was yep. really fun, but also some chicanery in that. So that was a, there was, there was a lot going on today. Um, yeah. Uh, I'm excited to dive into it, man. How about you? How are you doing? I'm doing well. I got to show Laura one of my favorite movies on planet Earth last night. She had never seen Michael Clayton, and it was great. I enjoyed it. That's it one was of your fantastic. Movies. I want to guess it. It is really, that's one of those I feel like I need to go back and watch because I saw it when it originally came out, and I was like 12 or 13, and I remember enjoying it at the time, but. I think I would actually get it a lot more now. I remember like yeah. all time really good Tom Wilkerson performance in that. Tom Wilkinson's very good. Tilda Swinton is incredible in it. And George Clooney is incredible in it. It's just, yeah. it came in like the craziest Oscar year ever where it's, there will be blood. It's no country for old men. Like that year is just absolutely bonkers in 20, in 2007. It's to me though, probably, I don't know that it's more impressive as an achievement than like there will be blood, but I enjoy it much, much more than there will be blood uh, and no country. Like I think that Michael Clayton is basically a perfect script uh, inside of 
perfect performances in perfectly directed film. Got to show Laura it last night, and I'm super excited uh, to have gotten to show her that. But people are not here to hear me talk about Michael Clayton. They're here to talk, hear me talk about the Warriors Lakers. The Lakers win this game 117 to 112. A really interesting back and forth game, it felt like to me, where in the first half, I thought that the Lakers generally, really even for the first three quarters, it felt like the Lakers generally got better shots than the Warriors did. And from really probably the beginning of the third quarter onward, it felt like the Lakers were at a solid 10-point lead throughout. And then the Warriors adjusted defensively a little bit in the fourth quarter, tightened things up. Over the course of the last six minutes, the Lakers scored five points. Two of those were on free throws at the end of the game with, I believe, 2.7 seconds left as the team, uh, as the Warriors fouled to try and get an extra possession. So realistically, three points in the final six minutes for the Lakers uh, because the Warriors absolutely turned up the screws defensively and twisted it. And it was a phenomenal game. But the thing that is most important to take away, I think, from this game is that for as good as Kevon Looney was again, and he had 10 points, 23 rebounds, five assists, the team in this game did not have an answer for Anthony Davis. Anthony Davis goes for 30 points, 23 assists, five or five 23 points or 30 points, 23 rebounds, five assists, four blocks, 11 of 19 from the field, eight of eight from the line. Uh, Anthony Davis was the guy in this game. He was the best player uh, on planet earth in this game, in my opinion. Like this is the idealized version that everybody wants of Anthony Davis. He's the reason they win this game. And we'll talk about some of the things that I think the Warriors did that were interesting and some of the things they could do later in this series to adjust to Anthony Davis, but it was a phenomenal, phenomenal game from Anthony Davis. Is that your biggest takeaway, Mark? Yeah. Um, I, I think that would be my biggest takeaway. Uh, I, and part of what was fun too, is uh, I, I think that the, the Warriors very much came out with this and said, um, okay, AD beat us. And, he did like based just on how they were playing defense on him, like that, everything they were doing was trying to deter drives, you know, be active to, to keep them, you know, having to play out of the pockets. And AD was awesome in that. He even, it wasn't even just the shooting. Like I thought his passing was really good today too, on a level that we don't always see. Like when he was drawing help, he was making great reads. Like there was a really specific one. And part of like, I love the way that the Lakers scripted and cuts for their guys who were not really getting respected as shooters. Um, and AD took a took really great advantage of that for them. And then the defensive end, I thought part of what was special tonight and where you could really see the difference. Like I think um the the other thing that stands out, I know a lot of that goes into AD is um them really being able to exert their size on the Sam is missing. There we go. Okay. The them really being able to exert their size on the Warriors like they very much felt like the bigger team against the Warriors tonight and I thought that was huge because um you know Sacramento had some really great defensive performances against the Warriors because of their 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 quickness and their ability to switch and their ability to play you know really push things far out on the perimeter and I thought 
the, the Lakers were able to play well defensively tonight because they were able to um, keep things out on the perimeter with their size on the interior and how well they were able to kind of navigate some things with that um, while also doing some really great things on the perimeter as well. But um, yeah, that was a really special AD game. We didn't even mention a stat line, 30, 23, five and four blocks. Um, that was an awesome performance from him. You are muted. I'm a nightmare, folks. Uh, here we go. I think that I'm glad you brought up the defense first because I do want to talk about that first. You bring up a really good point that the Lakers kind of did the exact opposite of what I felt like the Warriors did tonight defensively. Uh, the I expected to see the Warriors try and keep everything out of the paint and try to make it so that the Lakers had to beat them as a perimeter shooting team. Now that is difficult when, for the reasons you said, they looked bigger than the Warriors tonight. But as we've seen in the Heat series, you don't always have to be bigger than the opposing team to try and dissuade dribble penetration and to keep a team out of the paint. The Heat are much smaller than the Knicks, but they're able to do it through scheme. I expected the Warriors to do that. They did not. I also kind of expected the Lakers to try and do that, and I thought they were really successful over the course of this game. They make the Warriors shoot 53 three-pointers. The Warriors made 21 of those threes. All of Steph, Clay, and Jordan Poole ended up with at least six threes made in this game. I'm going to go through kind of while we're talking here to figure out how many games there have been where a team has had three players make at least six threes in a game and to lose a playoff game. I can't imagine that it's many. I can't imagine that a team, there are many opportunities where a team has made 20 threes in a playoff game and lost. Like there are probably precious few of those over the course of playoff history. Now the Warriors took 30 or 50 with three of them. And where I think the Warriors were successful or where I think the Lakers were successful was completely shutting off the paint on drives. This is something that the Warriors had an immense amount of success against with the Sacramento Kings being able to pull being able to pull Demonis Sabonis, Trey Lyles away from the basket and then being able to slice and dice with cuts with a lot of their passers and playmakers, right? It felt like there was always a help man down around the basket for the Warriors in this game which I think made it much more difficult for the Warrior or for the Lakers, which made it much more difficult for the Warriors to be able to get into some of those actions that they want to run, bringing Looney and Draymond away from the basket and being able to find uh, open cutters around the rim. I, I, it's it, it's going to be really interesting to see how the Warriors adjust to that piece of it, I think, offensively more than anything else because this is not a great dribble penetration team like the Warriors don't have these explosive athletes that are just going to be able to be a walking paint touch kind of like an Anthony Edwards or someone like that they're going to have to live by manufacturing paint touches and they did that in the King series really really well I'll be intrigued that's where I'm intrigued to watch I think moving forward yeah, I think uh, you know, kind of like like you just mentioned, you know, Clay, Steph, and 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 Poole all going off for six threes. All of them shot well from three tonight. 
But exactly like you mentioned, I think part of what made this work so well for the Lakers is that um, like they did some things aggressively on defense, but particularly with, you know, AD, they were doing a lot of just playing more center field, playing a little bit close to the level of the screen, but not all the way there. Um, and that was a big reason for why the Warriors end up all, – all three of those guys end up shooting well below average from from inside the arc. Like Steph was, I believe, 4 of 11 inside the arc, one trip to the free throw line, and it was on an and one. Uh, Jordan Poole – one of uh, one of four inside the arc. Clay Thompson, three of eleven. I mean, three of nine inside the arc. Like uh, it's not all just Anthony Davis, but a lot of that was Anthony Davis in the way that they played. With like, I thought Dennis Schroeder had a fantastic game tonight. I loved what they did sprinkling him in and getting him going as well, um, and what he brought as a chaser. Um, and then I love Jared Vanderbilt. They kind of took a little bit of a page out of uh, what Sacramento did by pressuring Steph you know, 94 feet with using Jared Vanderbilt as somebody to be on him the entire time. And I thought what uh, one of the adjustments that I, not even adjustments necessarily, like I thought that like, it's always easier said than done to just, you know, avoid something that another team is doing. But I thought the Warriors kind of played right in the Lakers hands by letting them pressure Steph as much as they did. Uh, You know, I thought they were very content to just say, okay, well, we'll just, play him off the ball and and run him off the ball. And I thought that was a really big struggle for them early on in the game. Um, like they, not that they quote unquote took stuff out of the game, but I think they took away a lot of, you know, getting the most out of his gravity and initial actions in place because the Lakers were, you know, when you put somebody who's six, eight, who was really active and like, I mean, Jared's mobility always stands out, of course, but the energy was like just unreal tonight. He was frenetic. Um, even like, like they were really airtight on switches and, um, like whenever, um, like there, there were a couple of late switches that happened, but for the most part, they were really good at, okay, we're just going to show and then have him recover over top. And, uh, and they were able to negate so much like that. And again, like it's a lot of what like Sacramento did, but they just have so much more size in what they were running. Yeah. Um, so they're able to get away with a little bit more and those, those pockets are, um, there's a lot less room for, for, for Golden State to navigate with that. And, uh, yeah, so I think I'm interested to see how aggressive they are coming out next game and making sure that Steph is getting going early because so much of what made the Warriors' offense flow late was, oh, hey, we really need to make sure the offense is running through Steph. And, um, yep. yeah. And I, I do want to say, too, just because I know it is the talk of the town right now, could the Warriors have gotten a couple more free throws Maybe, but it speaks to where their shots were being taken from. Like, that's right. I just, I get really frustrated with that happening all the time. Like, yes, do I think that they could have had more than six, three, six free throws as a team for sure? I don't think that they would have earned much more than that because of where they were taking their shots and how things were challenged. Like, I just, I can't get there. That's, that's, that's what your shot profile was. So, um, yeah, I just wanted to get that out of the way really quick because I've seen way too much of that already. Yeah, as we kind of talk here, I'm kind of my uh, screen is in front of my monitor. So I'm like kind of looking here to see how many shots the Warriors took in the restricted area. It looks like one, two, three, four, five, six, seven, eight, nine, ten, eleven, 10, 11 or so, something like that. Uh, not, not too many shots in the restricted area, which is going to lead typically 
to circumstances where you don't draw free throws. If you're not getting that dribble penetration, you're not putting yourself in the line to draw free throws. The other piece of this, you know, I said I was going to look up this number while we were talking or while Mark was talking. The Warriors became the seventh team in NBA history to lose, having made 21 threes in a game, in a playoff game. They are the first team to ever have three players make at least six threes in a playoff game and lose. That is wild, and that is actually a little bit worrisome if I'm the Warriors. Now, the thing that heartens me if I'm a Warriors fan is it did feel like throughout this game, and this is where we're going to kind of dive into tape after I get Mark's opinion on this, it felt a little bit like they were trying to trying to experiment with some different kinds of coverages throughout this game. You know, sometimes they use in the biggest way that you can do this is the way that you use the help man. We've talked throughout the playoffs against teams that play guys like Jared Vanderbilt, non-shooters that you if they shoot threes you're more than comfortable with it. You can either use your defensive player on Jared Vanderbilt as a proactive help defender. Think of the way that the Warriors typically use Draymond Green. They used him like this in some ways tonight. Or you can use that guy as a reactive, you know, whatever you want to phrase it, more of just a hiding help defender, which would be what the Warriors did tonight, for instance, sometimes with Stephen Curry on Jared Vanderbilt, where instead of trying to get the most out of a help defender, you're actually kind of sitting there and maybe letting Stephen Curry get a little bit of rest, some active recovery from having to sprint around on offense and carry the load offensively the whole time. It was interesting to me to see the way that the Warriors went about that. And it's also very interesting to me that the Warriors tended to have their most success actually I felt like defensively later in this game when they went a bit smaller with Jordan Poole in the game for Kevon Looney. What do you make of the Warriors' defensive performance tonight, Mark? Uh, it's a good question. Like Honestly, I felt that it was mostly fine. Um, I think, again, a lot of it came down to, like we mentioned, how... Um, how well AD played within the confines of, of how they wanted him to play. But I, I think like we hit on earlier, I do think that they could have done a lot more in trying to um, trying to make the, I mean, punish the Lakers for, for playing some of the guys that they were playing. Um, like, I don't think that they, like, to be fair, I thought Jared Vanderbilt did a really good job of doing as much as he could to be, you know, an active part of the offense. Um, but I, I still think, like looking all around, I th- it'll be interesting to see how much more they look to crunch down the paint moving forward. Like I, I don't yeah. think that they need to play as far out as they did on a lot of guys tonight. Um, yeah. so that'll be interesting to see how they adapt to that. Like I make Dennis Schroeder shoot as many times as he freaking wants to from outside. Like, yeah, easier said than done. Like again, like you, there's rescreens exist for a reason, but also. So does going under the screen and fighting through it. Like, you know, there's there, there's two sides to every story with that. So um, it's not like an end of the world thing for them. I don't think, you know, giving up 117 points. I, I always think it's important to 
keep it in context to what that really is right now. Cause like that's league average offense. So it's not the worst thing that's ever yeah. happened. Um, but also I, to me, I looked at this game and I was like, I wonder if they're going to get any kind of run from Kaminga moving forward, because I do think this needs to be a series where he or Jermichael Green really play. Like I, I kind of liked the Jermichael Green minutes. It wasn't perfect defensively, but I love the idea of what they were doing of we need somebody out there who can be a pick and pop threat. Cause that's, all they wanted from him. Um, and it, it did work against the Lakers. So I wonder if we continue to get more of that with how they're playing. Um, but yeah, it was uh, exactly like you mentioned. It felt like the Warriors came out to experiment a little bit in this one and the Lakers came out to win this one. Yeah. And we're going to kind of dive into tape here and I'll explain what I mean by that experimentation. So the Warriors tonight did end up, it was exactly a hundred possessions defensively for the Warriors tonight. They ended up at a 117 defensive rating uh, per the NBA site. That would be, you know, bottom five in the league. That's not a great defensive game from the Warriors. You know, two points difference from league average, but still not a, not a great defensive game by them. I felt like throughout the course of this contest. And we're going to kind of go through now what I mean by experimenting in terms of just different coverages here, right? So on this one, what you're going to see is that Draymond Green is on Jared Vanderbilt here. And by on Jared Vanderbilt, I mean, he he has like, he took a very quick glance in terms of his peripheral vision to see where Jared Vanderbilt was going as he as he kind of drove by him and then moved to the corner. But he is sitting here in the paint, just ready to be the help man on this Anthony. Or is this a LeBron James post up? I believe it's a LeBron post up. You're going to see here the Vanderbilt kick out happens, and Dre just doesn't move. Like Dre does not care. It was surprising to me after the way that this started that we didn't see more of this throughout the game. And by more of it, I mean like basically every minute that Jared Vanderbilt was on the court. I kind of expected the Warriors to do something like this. Uh, but as you'll see throughout the tape, they did not. Uh, here, what you're going to see is that Stephen Curry is actually on Jared Vanderbilt here. This is only at like the eight-minute mark of the first quarter. That previous possession uh, was at the nine-minute mark of the first quarter. This is now at the eight-minute mark. Steph shouldn't need this active recovery moment, Right. Like they've been playing for four minutes. You would not expect Steph to like need that blow to sit on Jared Vanderbilt for a possession. But what you're going to see here is that Steph is on Vanderbilt and they're going to kind of come through. They're going to run just this little kind of rub screen, you know, action for Vanderbilt for LeBron with Vanderbilt setting the screen. LeBron hits Vanderbilt on the roll. And then Draymond Green, who is on D'Angelo Russell. I don't want to say Dre is ball watching here. He's not really ball watching. And he gets the like kind of side view contest, but he's ball watching a little bit and he's a little late to get there. And it ends up being a wide open uh, D'Angelo Russell shooting pocket, shooting lane at least. And D'Angelo or Draymond gets the late contest on D'Angelo for sure. D'Angelo drops 19 points and six assists in this game versus only one turnover. It was a good game from D'Angelo Russell. But that's the kind of thing that you're missing. If this is, you know, Draymond Green on LeBron James here instead of, uh, or if this is Draymond Green on Jared Vanderbilt here, I just assume they switch this action at the mm -hmm. end of the day, right? And they just have 
you know, Andrew Wiggins move on to Vanderbilt here. And that's a thing that they're going to be more than comfortable with. Instead, Steph has to go and recover and it ends up being kind of a wide open three. It just completely changes the tenor of the defensive possession when that is the case. So again, you're going to see here, Stephen Curry is the person on Jared Vanderbilt. Jared Vanderbilt just kind of gets leverage on him. And instead of this being Draymond as the help defender, whenever, A, I don't think that, I don't think that Vanderbilt would be able to drive in this scenario on Stephen Curry. But B, if he does even, instead of this being Stephen Curry, it'd be Draymond Green as the help defender there in the basket instead of Stephen Curry. And that would make life a little bit harder, I think, overall. Now we're going to see this possession kind of run through. And again, eventually Draymond ends up down there, but like he has to be paying attention to D'Angelo Russell in like a pretty substantial way. Like he can't come up and put two on the ball here against LeBron James, because if he does, D'Angelo is just going to sink over to that corner and it's going to be an open three for a guy that's a 40% three point shooter on open three pointers. So I, again, I don't love the idea of them having Stephen Curry on Jared Vanderbilt. And I actually don't love the idea of them having Draymond Green on D'Angelo Russell, in all honesty. Like, I think that there are just better defensive matchups in this series. So here, uh, this is going to be a thing where you notice Draymond Green is actually going to call out to Dante DiVincenzo. They're in a transition scenario here where you're trying to pick up the guy that you can. Look at Draymond point. He's pointing to Dante, get over, get over. I've got Jared, you're on Dennis here. So here he's basically saying like, look, I've got Jared. Let me be the guy that sinks off of Jared here so I can help onto LeBron by doing that. He kind of sinks Dante into the passing angle and Dante is still in good, proper guarding position against Dennis. And this ends up being a turnover because they're just basically packing the paint in such a substantial way there. Uh, it's kind of a hard pocket pass to hit. Again, I love Jared Vander or I love Draymond Green as the help defender on Jared Vanderbilt. I think it's really their best move moving forward. So here, this is just a little bit different because it's Wenyan Gabriel on the court. And when Wenyan's out there, you kind of have similar incentives, in my opinion, uh, to be able to do some things. But again, this is Draymond Green on Jared Vanderbilt. And again, the paint is packed. If this is somebody else, you might see that this could have been a driving lane instead Draymond Green is sunk off of Vanderbilt I wish I had a pointer and he's just floating square in the middle of the lane because he's floating square in the middle of the lane this ends up being like a shitty elbow jumper from Dennis Schroeder Dray missed the block out but at the same token I think that that's a good shot and that's what you're looking for uh, offensively now again what you're going to see here is that Steph is on Jared Vanderbilt and look on this possession. This is that last one again. I have to let it run through. Because this is basically an empty side action. And because they have Steph hiding on Jared Vanderbilt. Instead of having a proactive help defender on Jared Vanderbilt. And again, I think this is Draymond Green actually guarding D'Angelo Russell here. If you just have Steph on D'Angelo. And you have Draymond Green on Jared Vanderbilt. You can sink. Draymond Green into the paint here in this empty side ball screen action that's going to come dribble handoff I'm sorry and instead of just having Steph stand there 
you would have a real rim protector around the basket here. Easy dunk for Anthony Davis. Again, this is these are just the kind of small things that I think we're going to see change throughout the course of this series. I, I'm not saying that like I think the Warriors did a terrible job here or anything. I really do, do genuinely think they were experimenting with different things throughout the course of this game. In this scenario, what you're going to see is that they actually moved later in the game Draymond Green onto Anthony Davis. And then when Kavon Looney was on the court, they actually switched Kavon out onto Jared Vanderbilt, which I think is a really uh, interesting strategy. By doing that, you now essentially have Kavon Looney, who can cut off this driving angle uh, on LeBron James in help, and he can be in that little passing pocket there to be able to get the turnover, force the difficult spot from Jared Vanderbilt there. And notice again here, uh, Draymond Green is going to fly over as well and just kind of be a nuisance here and help uh, off of Anthony Davis. It's kind of an aggressive move, but Draymond Green is one of the best help defenders in the NBA. I would utilize him like that in this series. Uh, that that would be my goal if I was the Golden State Warriors. I would want him in these circumstances where Jared Vanderbilt is on the court, Wenyan Gabriel is on the court. I think that you could do a lot of really intriguing things by forcing Draymond Green just to be that help guy rotating around like crazy as we've seen him do throughout the course of his career. The adjustment for the Lakers would be don't play Jared Vanderbilt. You start Dennis Schroeder with Austin Reeves, D'Angelo Russell, LeBron, and AD. It's kind of what I expected to see early in this series, to be completely honest with you. Um, but that didn't happen. And I think the Warriors let Jared Vanderbilt off the hook a little bit, in my opinion. Yeah, no, I I mean, as you pointed out, I think uh, I'd be in the same boat with that. I'm interested to see what they do in game two. Yeah, uh, it, it's going to be really, really interesting to watch throughout the course of this series. And just in terms of the adjustments, I, I loved I loved the Warriors late in this game. Actually, defensively, I thought they did kind of condense the paint a little bit more, even though they went smaller. Uh, I thought that it was just really interesting to watch all of this occur in real time. These are two really, really high-level teams, really interesting basketball coaches. Uh, Darvin Ham has been hit or miss throughout the course of the year. Steve Kerr, uh, you know, I think sometimes can be a bit slavish to scheme but in this game he was experimental and it was fascinating where where do you think we see this series go from here did this game change anything for you in terms of how you believe this series plays out um i mean i think that the i, I don't want to say that the lakers threw their best punch i think it was a really great performance all around i'd, I'd and especially with how well ad is playing um that has been you know, that's that's the blueprint for what they want to do. Um, but I also think that you saw some things that if I'm the Warriors, I feel good about. Um, I feel pretty good about – and I don't want to – I think it's always tough to, to, to figure out how to parse the root because, like, he's still arguably the greatest player of all time. This was not a good LeBron game, in my opinion. Um, I think that he did a lot of really good impactful things. Like I thought he was good defensively tonight, obviously does the stuff in transition. That's really important. But the, um, I was talking about this with our friend Zach Milner today about, uh, what your, 
decision making can look like, and it doesn't necessarily mean that you're a bad decision maker, but what it looks like when what you want to do with the ball in your hands doesn't match what you can think through and process in the game. And um, we're seeing that with LeBron this year, especially since he's come back from that foot injury. Um, Like he clearly is not the same getting downhill. Um, And that's led to like, I mean, watching him take these possessions where like they, they, what they were up, I think they were up three or five, in the last minute and he just dribbles out the entire clock after bringing the ball down. And like, that's just, it's so vexing and weird for me to watch as somebody who's, you know, grew up my entire life watching LeBron find the best possible shots, be this dominant clutch player who is so good at creating late clock. And I I mean, I want to run the numbers on it. It feels like his late clock offense has been pretty awful by his standards this year, at least over the last couple of months. And, um, I genuinely like I I think that there's always that there needs to be a blend between um you know efficiency and confidence in shooting but with where he's at as a three-point shooter right now I don't know man because some of the shots it's not like it's not even shots that I think the defense is reacting to like it's you know I'm gonna gun this early pull up three in transition with two or three seconds off the shot clock and um just with where he's at right now and what it's looked like a lot of the year in taking that, I, I don't know. Um, I, I don't want to be too harsh on it, but I do think when I look at that, if this is like, like we, we know that LeBron is going to have a better game uh, moving forward. And again, like still had a good game today, but it just, when you're talking about that level of, of that level of impact, it's not, you know, what you're accustomed to or, or what it could have been. Um, I do think that the Warriors can do some things to really try and be like, hey, you are resorting these tendencies. Like, it's not just yeah. a one-game fluke. What can we do to really try and force you to be in this different zone? Because even, like, some of the like he, some of the turnovers he had were just, like, really forced. And, like, that's been kind of the thing for him this year, which has been weird to watch. Like, it – it almost feels like a regression in how he's as a playmaker. And that's not to, again, not to, not to deter from him, but like I spoke about earlier, I think when you see somebody who's uh, like, he's not able to get everywhere on the court in the way that he has been capable of in the same way. And so it it plays out in his decision-making a little bit. And um, I am interested to see if the Warriors try and do anything to really play into that, because um, I mean, if you take away some of those things, I think that it it looks really interesting moving forward. Well, and I think that what you're saying is something that I've been saying throughout the playoffs a little bit. I don't think his first step is what it used to be. Like, look, that's Captain Obvious statement, right? He's, you know, 39 at this point, right? Uh, 38 years old, doesn't turn 39 until December. But it's harder for him to get that consistent dribble penetration in half court settings he can do it in the full court he can get that freight train mentality going and get downhill and like really get moving but i think in the half court it's a little bit harder for him against help defenses that like kind of come in and kind of put two on the ball on his drives for him to get all the way to the basket and because of that he's still adjusting in my opinion to okay, I can't get all the way to the rim. 
my dribble kickout game is still not quite where it can be, right? Like LeBron over the course of this playoffs, I think he's like right around five assists a game, which is low for LeBron, right? Uh, and it feels like to me, it's because that, you know, dribble drive kickout game is just not quite where it has been. Like LeBron so far in the playoffs, I think is something like five assists versus like 3.2 turnovers or something like that. For a guy like that, it, it's abnormal at the very least. And I think a big part of it is because it's a little bit harder for him to get that dribble penetration. I do just want to shout out, uh, you know, I talked a little bit about Jared Vanderbilt's offense or lack thereof. You know, Ross and Chaudhry here brings up a really good point. You know, Jared Vanderbilt causes so much chaos for a Warriors team that relies on timing and passing and is prone to turnovers. That's 100% right. His ability to kind of wreak havoc in passing lanes, his ability to wreak havoc getting around those dribble handoffs, uh, getting around all sorts of different uh, uh, you know on-ball actions for Steph, I think it is a real factor for the Lakers in the series. And being able to keep him on the court is going to be really important for the Lakers, including being able to maintain that enormous size that Mark and I talked about at the top here. Uh, that is a big reason they can play as big as they do. That again, though, is why, in my opinion, the Lakers or the Warriors need to really hammer him whenever the Warriors are on defense. They need to really make it so the Lakers are not getting anything out of Vanderbilt offensively and, in fact, are being hindered by Vanderbilt Vanderbilt offensively uh, in this series. And it felt like they did not take enough advantage of that. That is their adjustment, I think, moving forward just being able to really, really hone in on that and make it harder for Vanderbilt to be out there. Mark, this has not changed my opinion on anything. I think this is a seven-game series. I think this is one of the best series we're going to see in the playoffs. Uh, certainly one of the best we've seen in a while, to be in all, to be honest. Uh, do you have anything else to say about this? Uh, I think I think it goes six. I don't think it goes as I I still think like Kings Warriors is like one of the best playoff series I've watched in my lifetime. I don't think it's going to be better than that. I think it's still going to be a very good playoff series, but yeah, I think I'd probably lean six in this one. And you would say Lakers then? No, in, in either way. I think I'm not going to make a determination until after game two um, just because I want to see how a team adjusts. Uh, but yeah, I think just that that's just my feel on it. I could be completely wrong. That's That's mostly just vibes. Yep. Well, the vibes are important, Mark. You can't deny the vibes. Speaking of vibes, Jimmy Butler's vibes are typically immaculate, but they were not tonight. Let's take a quick commercial break, and then we're going to talk about the Miami Heat and Jimmy Butler not playing in their game against the New York Knicks. We're talking about players securing the bag when they get drafted in June. I need to tell you about securing your internet connection with NordVPN. What is a VPN? It's a virtual private network. A VPN reroutes your traffic through a remote server, encrypting it in the process. This is going to hide your location from your ISP, hackers, and from other people looking to get your data. Everybody knows that I watch as many movies as I can. I think I've probably watched like 40 or 50 this year already. Some movies are blocked in Australia. It's really hard for me to watch them. Uh, For instance, uh, anybody who's tried to get their hands on Godzilla minus one recently knows that it's basically only available in Japan. 
and you need a VPN if you want to go to like Amazon Prime or something to be able to watch it. So when I'm blocked from watching a movie in Australia, I just queue up my VPN. I change my location and it unlocks a category of movies from all of my favorite streaming services. As somebody who's always on the go, connecting to public Wi-Fi is a necessity, but it's also just a goldmine for hackers. That's where Nord comes in, creating a secure tunnel for my data to travel through away from prying guys. There are other benefits to Nord as well. Your browsing history is yours and yours alone. Your virtual location is masked from those who seek to track your every move. It's like having a force field around your online identity. NordVPN also goes the extra mile with threat protection. Malware, trackers, dodgy ads, they're all going to get blocked. It's like having a shot blocking big around your devices 24-7. Game Theory is offering an exclusive deal for NordVPN. You're going to get four extra months and up to 75% off subscriptions. Just head to nordvpn.com slash game theory, G-A-M-E-T-H-E-O-R-Y, to claim your account. Plus, with Nord's 30-day money-back guarantee, you've got nothing to lose and everything to gain. Go to nordvpn.com slash game theory to claim your account, nordvpn.com slash game theory. Guys, I can't emphasize enough uh, how much I use Nord every day of my life. Uh, Nord is a fantastic sponsor for us. So go support Nord. And it's a great product. So nordvpn.com slash game theory. Okay, we're back, Mark. The New York Knicks defeat the Miami Heat tonight uh, in a fairly ugly game that was 111 to 105 at Madison Square Garden. It was enjoyable, don't get me wrong, but it did feel like an incomplete game on some level because we did not have Jimmy Butler in this game. And frankly, Julius Randle had moments where he looked phenomenal, and you look at the final stat line. He goes for 25 points, 12 rebounds, 8 assists. I think he certainly played well. But he does look a bit tentative on the ankle as well, it feels like to me. And I'm going to be really interested to see how he pulls up from that coming into game three uh, of the series in Miami. What were your overall impressions of this game uh, as you watched it unfold? Uh yeah, I like you mentioned, I think just adding Julius brings that other factor for the, the Knicks offense. Um, I think a couple things. Um, I've been a little bit bothered by how much or, or bothered maybe is a little bit too strong. But like uh, the Knicks are really struggling to get into the paint um, on a team that I don't think they should be struggling into the paint as much as they are. And Miami's getting into the paint way easier than they should be. Um, like Kyle Lowry was, even if like, again, like his box score wasn't, wasn't anything crazy. Um, but I thought he had, especially in the second half, he had some really great stuff getting into the paint and, and it was on contested drives. Like he blew by Quentin Grimes a couple times, um, who to be fair, came off injury has not completely looked right on, on either end of the, of the court. And I'm hoping that he can get right because the Knicks need him to be, um, but especially with like like it's not like the Heat are generating tons and tons of rim pressure, but it's enough to get them going and get to their shots the way that they need. 
Um, so I think to me, the way I looked at this game was very much a, I feel good that I won if I'm the Knicks, but also, boy, we need to clean up some things before Jimmy Butler comes back because I think that obviously it's not always one-to-one, but even if you have some good things to take away from in this game, I think that there are some things that are going to need to be cleaned up uh, moving forward that were present in game one as well. Yeah, big news. The good news for the Knicks in this game, I thought, was that they made 40% of their threes. They went 16 of 40 from three. Jalen Brunson got back you know, going again, which was really, really important after game one. Uh, he goes for 30 points, five rebounds, two assists on 10 of 19 from the field, six of 10 from three, was a really, really terrific player tonight, uh, especially in the second half for the New York Knicks. Uh, we're going to talk a little bit about RJ Barrett. He goes for 24 points, three rebounds, three assists in this game as well. He was the only negative player in the starting lineup for the New York Knicks, uh, which as always is very intriguing to look at in terms of what the plus minus is uh, during games like this. But I, I just, I saw nothing in this game that makes me think the heat aren't the favorite moving forward. They have home court advantage. Now they're probably going to get Jimmy Butler back. We would think uh, I can't imagine. That can Jimmy I, Butler can is... I give you my reason for why the heat aren't the favorite? Yeah. Like I'm not saying that, I think I would still pick the Knicks to win this series. Um, it's Bam, man. Like, I think okay. Bam, Bam's defense was awesome tonight. I'm not going to take yep. that away. Um, like, I thought in terms of somebody – like, I, I tweeted this out. Like, just a master class in sticking in front of people. Like, um, he is so good at not biting on pump fakes. The way – like, I, I thought that the Knicks did a much better job of trying to get not – drag Bam into actions in the second half, and that helped open things up for Jalen Brunson. But part of Brunson's struggles in the first half were like, yeah, we're getting Bam involved in actions. And I, that was confusing to watch. And believe it or not, Jalen Brunson really struggles to drive and score on Bam <laughs> bio. I mean, you went one of six in the first half, was really struggling to create separation. Part of that was their guards too. But yep. um, I thought Bam was awesome. But I mean, his offense in the playoffs has just been really disappointing to watch. Um, like, again, that's not to put it completely on him and make it completely his onus, but especially with how much uh, – I mean, Mitch Robb went into – was in foul trouble most of the game tonight. I think he picked up his second foul like three or four minutes into the game. Um, yeah. Ends up just only playing 20 minutes tonight. And not like Hartenstein's a bad defender, but – for what Bam can do. I, I do think like, it's just frustrating. Like I, I think that there are like, it, it's, it, it always comes back to the same things and it's not the, it's not the exact same, but it's a lot of the same stuff as, uh, as like with looking at Miles Turner and the Pacers, like you got to create your own offense at some point. This is not a, um, we need to draw up plays for you. This is okay. You're running handoffs. You're running delay sets. You're, you are controlling the ball. You are doing things with the ball and yes, you're creating shots for teammates, but also you're the best player on your team right now. Like yes. they, they need you to go create shots, even if it's not like something perfect. I think him getting into the lane or, or trying to draw fouls or doing anything, getting downhill with where they're at right now would be monumental for what they need. I mean, they took 49 threes tonight and it felt like they needed every one of them. Um, and I, I don't know, like I'm not trying to hit him too hard with this, Um but it's been a thing the entire playoffs. And I think if I feel 
if I, if I'm going to feel that the, the Heat can win the series, I think that they need a lot more from Bam offensively than taking 10 field goal attempts in a game because um, he's capable of a lot more. The scary thing is I don't think they need more. <laughs> uh, if Jimmy Butler is playing, I don't. Like I think that we got a Jalen Brunson explosion tonight in part because the adjustment that the Heat made in game one was not on the table. They switched Jimmy Butler onto Jalen Brunson in game one uh, in the second half, and Jalen had a miserable time with it, right? Uh, it made it a little bit harder for the Heat in this game not having Jimmy Butler to field high-level defensive lineups consistently, uh, high-level two-way lineups consistently, let's go with. Like, they had to play Haywood Highsmith 15 minutes in this game. Haywood Highsmith's actually, like, a really good defender. It's just that he is you have to really manufacture anything to make him viable on offense in any way. Caleb Martin plays 38 minutes tonight. Uh, he was good, too, I thought. And he was um, good, yeah. But Duncan Robinson plays 21 minutes tonight, right? You replace... 40 of those minutes with Jimmy Butler, right? Like that's a substantial upgrade, both on offense and on defense, even with Caleb Martin being as good as he is on defense. Uh, I, part of this is that I just really trust Eric Spolstra. I'm like fully in the fucking bag for Eric Spolstra at this point. Yeah. Uh, some of the things he did in this game, and I feel like we're giving the Knicks the short end of the uh, stick here. And I apologize for that. But like, some of the things Eric Spolster did in this game, let's just like pull up the clips to be able to talk about it. I just pulled like four or five, uh, just basically ATOs or sets that the Heat ran to be able to create different uh, different opportunities throughout the course of this game. And this one here is really fun. So you're going to see Duncan Robinson cross through the entire set here. You're going to see Kayla, or, uh, Cody Zeller just like kind of act like he's going to set a super high ball screen, but not really. And then what this does is throughout the entirety of this set, because you have your man on the weak side here, I can't tell who that is. That might be Haywood Highsmith, just essentially blocking off uh, Quentin Grimes here as a screener. If Gabe Vincent turns the corner on Emmanuel quickly, it's over. And then you're essentially in a one-on-two where that's actually Hay Haywood Highsmith in the corner. I can't quite tell who that is. That might be Kyle Lowry setting that screen. Sure Lowry setting screen, yeah. Yeah. Uh, you're basically putting Obi Toppin in an impossible situation here. You're stressing Gabe Vincent to turn the corner if you're Eric Spolster here. And this is just fantastic, right? Like this set puts Obi Toppin in an impossible spot. Highsmith gets the open three. Bam. It's just money. This is a beautiful ATO here, right? Uh you're going to see again, they're going to develop something for Haywood Highsmith again. Uh, going to kind of get this ball here into Bam. He's going to set this screen for Duncan. And you assume, because Bam had a bio and Duncan Robinson throughout the course of their careers, have had just immaculate synergy in dribble handoff settings, even down in the corners or on the wings. You're going to see here it's going to come back, and you're expecting just this little screen here for bam to be able to flip it to duncan and be able to make a three and the knicks know that that's coming right the knicks see that coming which is why obi toppin flies toward duncan i guarantee that's on the scouting report because that's what duncan robinson does right this is eric spolstra playing off of the scouting report here countering what the knicks are trying to do just creates a wide open driving lane for haywood highsmith 
get the contest there from Quentin Grimes. Really good rotation from Quentin Grimes. Deserves credit there. But because he had to come off Kyle Lowry, Kyle Lowry ends up getting this easy bucket. Here's another one that's really fun. And you're going to see two back-to-back really fun uh, things here. So a lot of what the Heat tend to do on the backside is they'll try and maybe run like a flex cut toward the basket off of like Kevin Love coming down or they'll have Kevin Love come down and set a pin down. But what you're going to see here is that Jalen Brunson comes up and he's just like top locking Max Struess. He's stopping Max Struess from being able to take that little pin down action and come across or come over the top of it uh, and get this open three point opportunity. So instead, what Max Struess does really intelligently, he just goes down instead of flex cutting, he just sets a screen on Kevin Love's man. Wide open three. Wide open three for Kevin Love. This is a counter to exactly what the Knicks are doing uh, to defend. And what you're going to see here on this next possession, which occurred, that well, that last one was the last possession, I believe, uh, of the, or one of the last, or no, no, yeah, 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 that was the last possession, basically, of the second half, or of the second quarter. This is going to be at the 940 mark of the third quarter. Jalen Brunson. No longer top-locking Max Struess on these backside exchange actions. And you're going to see here, Bam Adebayo, he's going to be able to get into that handoff set for Max Struess. Here's the thing. In these situations, the Knicks are very clearly being told, you have to get out onto the shooter, which is what Mitchell Robinson does. Bam just keeps it in this circumstance, gets down, drives the lane. I think that there is so much more room throughout the course of the rest of this series for Bam Adebayo to specifically play the keepers on dribble handoffs because of the way that Mitchell Robinson is going to be forced to play him uh, throughout the course of this series, right? Uh, Because of the way that Mitchell Robinson is playing shooters, because of the way the Knicks are playing shooters, I think there is so, so much that Bam can do off of these actions, particularly in order to take advantage of the Knicks defense here just really manufactured a lot of shit. And I think that once you get Jimmy Butler back, it becomes even easier to manufacture stuff because of the amount of attention that Jimmy Butler uh, will end up getting from the opposing team. I, I just, it's hard for me to believe given the way that the heat have been easy, have been able to manufacture offense throughout the series, both with and without Jimmy Butler. I think it's been much easier for them at this point. Uh, And additionally, I think that their defensive scheme in terms of being able to pack the paint, I I don't trust the Knicks shooters. Do you trust the Knicks shooters? That's kind of what it comes down to, right? I think I do. Um, And like, it's not even about the, like, I, I, yeah, no, that's a good point. I think it's less about the shooting to me and more just, scoring overall like I think the biggest disappointment for the Knicks in the playoffs and to be fair like he's still been very good defensively he's done a lot of really important stuff with moving the ball and and getting offense going but they need Emmanuel quickly to be the scorer that he yes was throughout the season I think that that's the biggest difference maker moving forward um because their bench units just haven't hit the same with him not being that level of scorer yes um well and if he's not that guy they don't have the ability to adjust and go smaller right like lineups that they've loved to run throughout the course of this year. They love to have these Jalen and quickly lineups out there with two wings and 
you know, Julius Randle or two wings and Mitchell Robinson, but it's typically Julius. If you don't have that adjustment in the bag because Emmanuel isn't playing quite as well as you need him to, you're then looking at something like when you want to go to go to those small lineups, it's, you know, Jalen Brunson, Josh Hart, RJ Barrett, and Quentin Grimes. Quentin Grimes has this shoulder injury right now that, you know, I, I think kind of has him a little bit tentative as a shooter. RJ Barrett's knocking down threes as we're going to talk about. That's a really big factor here. And then Josh Hart went two for four from three tonight, but Josh is not the most uh, confident shooter from time to time. So it's hard. He took three of those threes in the last five minutes of the game and he had so many opportunities that he passed up to. So exactly like it's yeah. Yeah. Very fake four threes. Yeah. So to me, schematically, I still think Miami has the advantage in this series based off of what I've seen. But there, the Jimmy Butler injury factor is a real thing. I think getting Julius Randle back in this game was enormous in terms of the rebounding battle. Uh, a big part of the Knicks' success in the Cavs series was being able to just absolutely hammer the Cavs on the defensive glass or on the offensive glass. In this series, it's a little bit harder because the Heat are a top five defensive rebounding team in the NBA. But if you have both Randall and Robinson attacking the offensive glass constantly, I think that they are much bigger than the guys on the heat. And you can do as well as you want to boxing out. If you have guys that are just going to be able to move you like big adults, like Mitchell Robinson and Julius Randall and Isaiah Hartenstein tonight, he had four offensive rebounds. I think that there is a chance that they can get those extra possessions and make it a little bit harder. Mm Hmm. Let's talk about R.J. Barrett, though. What have you enjoyed about R.J. Barrett in this playoff run, Mark? Because I, I have loved to see it. Yeah, everything. Uh, I think, like like you kind of mentioned with the the plus minus, I think part of that was they they wanted to get him rest, and they ended up playing him with uh, with the bench unit a lot. And the bench unit, as we mentioned, has kind of struggled. So I, I don't take too much away from it. Not that you were saying that there's much to take away from it. But um, he was really like their only source of offense – that was consistent in the first half. Um, and part of what's been awesome about watching him play in the playoffs is he's just letting the game come to him. Like so much of what has been the RJ Barrett problem for me, uh, problems probably too harsh, but like just the issues with him has been like, you see the complete intrigue and alert of everything you can do, but it just feels like everything is forced. Um, everything feels stiff. Uh, and the jumper has really came and went and to, Luckily, it has been here in the playoffs, and he's been willing to uncork and let it go. Finish with nine attempts tonight, hit five of them. Um, the biggest thing, though, has been I think the decision making uh, and overall like feel for what to do and the flow of the offense has been perfect. Like it's not, it's not anything like groundbreaking. It's just okay. I'm big. I'm strong. I can get to the rim. I'm going to move the ball when I draw to. I'm going to make a proactive play as I see it unfold, instead of forcing something, he's like, he's been good at hitting cutters on the baseline. He's been good at hitting guys in the dunker spot. Um, and that stuff, like it's simple stuff, but it's stuff that he really struggled with at times this year. Like there were times where he didn't even look at the dunker spot or he didn't even look to make corner kickouts. And like, he's such a good driver and somebody who's strong enough to really just put his shoulder down and get in the lane that if he's just making the simple passes and, and with, with timeliness, that's perfect for him. And I think you put that in with 
he has kind of figured out how to slow down a little bit. And like, he's been really good with deceleration in the playoffs. I felt like, like there's been so much stuff with him where, you know, he's getting offensive fouls because he's a little bit out of control on drives or, you know, he just isn't quite on balance. And I think at least in the playoffs, it really has felt like he's kind of had that down pat with, you know, how to be in control in the lane. And um, like there, there were some imperfect moments early on in the Cavs series with him on post-ups, but I think he's done some better stuff of being quick with his post-ups because I think when he is doing back downs and trying to get into his post-fade game, that's where I feel less confident in his post-up game. But when he is catching, getting into a jab series and, and ripping quick, like I think that's where he's really good. And I think we've seen him do a lot more of that. I want to see him do that. Um, like he did some of that in game one and it looked good. I want like, it wasn't really as much of that tonight. I think there can be more of that moving forward, but um, it's just been a lot of putting everything together a little bit. Um, and it's been very fun to watch and the defense yeah, think, has been good too. Yeah. I think the defense has been really good. I think that's really important. I think throughout the, uh, you know, especially the middle portion and later portion of this year, it felt like his defense, particularly off the ball was messy let's go with the uh, inattentiveness was there and you know lack of awareness and reactivity was there uh and it was a little bit frustrating but one thing that mark jones mentioned in i think it was game four of the cab series maybe was that between game three or maybe it was game five you know somewhere after game two of that series mark jones said that rj barrett really got in the gym and actually adjusted the shooting pocket on his jumper a little bit to the left. So let's kind of dive in because I, I went and found a shot from very late in the season. I think it was like their 80th game of the year against Orlando, where we're going to see here that RJ Barrett is going to take this kick out kind of in the corner. And you're going to see the shooting pocket is like kind of straight above his head. It feels like there. Uh, I do think there is a little bit of also, if you look at the way he's loading as well, it feels like his gather is very twisted, like toward his right a little bit. And it is a little bit interesting to see because when that happens, you can have a little bit too much offhand interaction. You can have a number of different things. Your elbow can be out of alignment. There are a lot of different things that can happen. So this is going to be a missed shot here. Orlando is going to get the rebound, et cetera, right? So let's take a look at tonight. So this is a pretty good look at it. Basically the same spot. And what I think I'm seeing here at the very least, I don't know about you, Mark, is you're going to see him catch. It feels like he's bringing the ball up more from the left side of his body and it is helping him keep his elbow in alignment a little bit more underneath the ball i'll run that again for you are you kind of seeing the same thing yeah it's a much more clean straight up and down motion instead of something going uh you know like 45 degrees across which i think has been an issue for him um and i think you saw that in all the shots tonight it's all just like Going straight up with it. Um, I, I really like you pointing that out. Yeah, it, it just feels a little bit smoother to me. 
in terms of the shot, which is important. And the shot comes at 1030 of the first quarter. Uh, we're going to get just an RJ explosion here coming down. This is going to be, I believe, another three from RJ on a double team kickout from Julius Randall here. Uh, the thing I really love about this play, this is the kind of shit where it's just like Josh Hart, fucking beautiful man. I love Josh Hart so much. Uh, Josh Hart recognizes what's happening here. RJ's man has sunk in and Josh's own man, I believe, is the player that went to double on Randall here. Uh, or no, 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 it was Bam, it was Mitchell's man. And because of that, Kevin Love has to kind of like sink in a little bit, be prepared, and then look at Josh Hart. Josh Hart is going to cut here, which is going to open up the entire thing because he cuts. RJ's man has to tag him as a cutter, and it's going to open up the entire right side of the court for RJ. Uh, it's a really, really smart play by Josh Hart there. And again, entire, I think body looks in so much more alignment here mm-hmm. in terms of the shot. Like, I really think that it's, I think that there could be something to this in terms of him being a bit of a better shooter right now. Uh, this is just really important. I think the Knicks in circumstances like this, where they have the Miami heat defense bent in some way, their players taking these kickouts or taking these reversals need to be willing to attack that gap. They have to be willing to do it aggressively and confidently. I know you're driving into Bam Adebayo. This is perfect. This is a beautiful little floater by RJ Barrett. Makes it. You have to be aggressive here. You have to be willing to attack those gaps because those gaps are not presenting themselves that often uh, in this series because of the way Miami is sagging and helping uh, off of guys. So here, again, this is just a corner kick out. The ball is just going to get to R.J. Barrett. And again, you're going to see things look so much more just aligned and simple. The shooting pocket does look a little bit moved over to the left. I think Mark Jones was on it, man. Mm-hmm. I think this is absolutely true. And then you're going to see here, this is a kick out. And I just love the strides. This is always the thing that R.J., has been able to do and where I thought he was going to find his most success in the NBA. These strides, the stride length, these powerful strides, that's him turning the corner on Haywood Highsmith. Again, like a pretty good defender. He just gets around him. I think it was absolutely terrific. Like this, this is the kind of stuff that I'm sure that you, I, I can see a world where you were not quite as high on RJ coming into the draft, right? Uh, I was like, I, I didn't know I was, that was like pre me having really a great understanding that I, I really liked RJ cause I love, like I watched that Duke team a lot that year. Um, yeah. and I liked RJ a lot. I didn't really know what to make of him. He's somebody I've always just been really interested in and, and felt could be a really fun player. I agree. No. And it's that power. It's that blend of power that he has. He's always needed the jumper. I hope that this is a fixed long-term for the jumper. To me, that's going to be the thing. If this is a fixed long-term for the jumper, he has something here. Uh, again, here he goes. It's just an easy kick out for RJ. Made shot. Uh, again, this is going to be, I believe, just another reversal up to the top. He's just taking them confidently. Like, When was the last time you saw RJ Barrett take threes like this in rhythm as confidently as he is 
I'll get back to you when I have a date. <laughs> <laughs> but it's been a while, right? Yeah. It's definitely been a while. So it's really good to see this. And then here we go. RJ just going to kind of reverse and he's going to spin. He's going to work his way in the lane and he's going to finish. Uh, this is the power again. This is what he's got. Uh, Connor Andrews in the YouTube comments brings up those Leonard Miller long steps by RJ. It's those long strides that Leonard's got. I love it, man. I absolutely love it. Uh, but that's it, right? That's that's what this is. This is that RJ Barrett looks a lot more comfortable and confident. And I think he's feeding off of the jumper now in a substantial way. He feels more confident in the jumper. And when that jumper goes, I think the Knicks are a different team. And I think yeah. he's a different player, which allows him to stay on the court and be a really valuable player. Because look, there were times throughout the course of the season, I wondered, is there are the Knicks sometimes better without him late in games? especially when Emmanuel quickly is rolling, right? Like if you can play Brunson quickly, Hart and Grimes together with Julius Randall, or you play two bigs with three of those guys that can sometimes leave out RJ and Emmanuel quickly was amazing throughout the course of the regular season, but without him being as good as he is, the Knicks have desperately needed RJ and seeing him take this leap over the course of Realistically, the last five games, I would say, is really important for the Knicks, both now and moving forward. Yeah, no, 100%, man. Okay. Let's get to the last two topics on our list. Let's talk about Joel Embiid winning MVP first. Joel Embiid is your MVP, Mark. He was your choice for MVP. Does this make you happy to see Joel Embiid win the MVP award? Yeah, Um I think it was awesome to see that. I, I think my initial reaction whenever somebody wins something, unless they're like an absolutely shit person, is to just be happy for them. Um, so I think it's hard for me to look at this and not be happy for Joel. Like it's yeah. the best season of his career. He's played at an MVP level the last couple of seasons. That doesn't mean that, you know, like I am disputing other MVPs. Like I think that every, any given year there can be multiple guys who are deserving. Um, yep. And I think this was the right choice. Like I'm very – happy with him when he, I would have been cool with others but again Joel was my choice and um I just hope that he can get healthy and get to continue showing out in the playoffs but also even if he doesn't get to that's not an indictment of what he did this season so I'm just very thrilled for him yeah no I'm thrilled for Joel Embiid too especially uh, when, when you, you think about the fact that um you know like it's it's easy to get lost in the moment of you know what he is now but looking back at waiting two years for him to play, um, all the injuries he dealt with, you know, just throughout his career, uh, a lot of uncertainty in general. Um, and just to see him get to this point, get hit to, I don't want to call it the pinnacle of his career because he's still young. Like, you know, there's primes are different for everyone. Um, but just to see him get to have this moment is really cool. I completely agree with you. And if you remember with Joel Embiid, he came into the NBA with real injury concerns. He missed the first two years of his career, essentially, uh, with injury concerns. He was taken at the top of that draft in 2014. And there were real there was real skepticism about if he was ever going to reach his prime. Not due to talent. Everybody knew that this guy was an unbelievable, you know, once in a generation mover in terms of fluidity for someone that's seven foot two and 250 pounds at that time, everybody knew that that's 
what was possible for him. So to see him actualize it always just makes me really happy. Like I will, you're never going to see me like clown somebody for winning MVP. Uh, I, I personally would have voted for Giannis. I said that on the award show that Mark and I did, but that doesn't mean I'm not ecstatic. I think Joel is a more than worthy winner of MVP. Like, can I can I load up on something else really quick? Um, yeah, of course. I just I've uh, you and I talked about this mostly not on here, um, just because we we tend to try and find ways to talk more about things positively and just highlight the basketball. This MVP discussion in yours has been ridiculous on all fronts, and I just need fans to a as as I mentioned on the pod last week, touch grass. B um recognize that pull quotes um 15 second video clips and bullshit on social media are not the full embodiment of a player in person um like yeah i just get like so annoyed and and i mean it was both with Jokic and and with 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 joel like i think you could very clearly see fans anytime that there was a quote from Joel after he'd undoubtedly been asked the same question 17 times and finally yeah, gave right. somebody an answer. Like the award doesn't mean something to me, blah, blah, blah. Like can somebody certainly say something pointed in the media for sure. But also I just think making so much out of things is incredibly annoying. Like you don't know the guy, he's not showing you himself for the most part, most likely anyways. And it's just stupid. We're talking about MVP of a professional sports league. Like, why does that have to become this giant thing? So I just find it very annoying. Um, just be happy for people and pull your head out of your ass. <laughs> so I do think it's important. I will say that. Like, I think that these things are incredibly important. No, yeah, it's like, important. I just mean, in like, grand scheme like, of everything, like, this MVP yeah. discussion this season and the way that fans have been about it is not important, and it's stupid. Like, the way that yeah, people have approached it. We certainly don't condone attacking like other fans like we saw uh, throughout the course of this year. And, and I think that like while I think very differently about basketball from other people and I think that uh, people will overvalue analytics regularly, like these one number analytic points, right? Uh, these all-inclusive stats, um, most of the people bringing them up can't even name the numbers that go into the stats. Oftentimes I, I would prefer that MVP would be voted on by people that know what they're talking about. I've expanded. I, I have gone on at length before about how I would love to see the MVP and all of the award uh, conversations be expanded uh, and all of the voting bodies be expanded. Like I think there is a world where we should be including players in this discussion like people will talk often about how oh my god you see some of the all-star votes that some people give out guys there are so many basketball junkies that are professional players some of them aren't some of them play professional basketball in the nba uh because they like the lifestyle and they like the paycheck and they like everything that comes with it but there are many 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 more are pure basketball junkies that just fucking love the game and would love the ability to vote on MVP, I think, and would love the idea of maybe not necessarily voting in one way or another on their own peers or for their teammates or something like that. But I think that they would very genuinely take it seriously 
because they care about this stuff. They do. It matters within their contract structures. It matters within all of these discussion points. I would love to see players involved. I think there's a world to involve like front offices and coaches in some way. Uh, let those guys get a voice. Let the media continue to have a voice. Like I'm all for that as well. I think that the media does have, if you take it seriously as a media person, like Mark and I do, uh, you can have a real gauge of the entire league. And I think that's important as well. So I, I think that these conversations are really important. I also think that we need to be just very understanding about like the fact that social media is in very real terms, probably killing our brain on some level. And it makes it a lot easier for people's voice to get out there and to get probably expanded in a way that it used to not be able to get expanded when you were just bullshitting with your friends at the bar. And look, I go to the bar and bullshit with my friends regularly. I'm here for it. Uh, I love the fact that that also continues to be an option. But at the same token, we need to understand that like you can't say the same things at the bar that you're saying like publicly in Twitter. I mean, look, I guess I do, but like I'm not a dickhead. I guess. Um, so look, Depends on the be a little, be a little bit more cognizant of what you're saying online. Uh, be a little bit more cognizant of uh, the way that these conversations come off and frankly, just be happy for people. Right. Like I said, like I wouldn't have voted for Joel, but I'm fucking ecstatic for that guy, man. Like it, it's a, am- it's an amazing story. This kid came from Cameroon and like picked up basketball late and is just such an incredible player and is such an incredible personality within basketball. I don't know how you can't be anything but just thrilled for this guy. Uh, I, I, I love it. I, I absolutely adore it. Um, congrats to Joel. It's amazing. I would have voted Joel number two when we did awards. I said that uh, I thought Joel and Giannis were 1A and 1B this year. And I think that a, a vote for either is completely justified, completely valid. Whatever you want to do is your choice as a voter. Um I'm just excited. I'm ecstatic for uh, Giannis uh, and I'm excited for, I'm ecstatic for Joel. I'm not ecstatic for Giannis. Uh, Giannis finished third in this vote, but I, I am ecstatic for Joel just across the board. Uh, the last thing I want to talk about Dylan Brooks news, uh, Sean Strani my colleague over at the athletic, he reported earlier today that Dylan Brooks will, I believe it was not be on the Memphis Grizzlies next season. Under any circumstances, uh, my, my guess on that was that the under any circumstances was Shams phrasing, not necessarily the phrasing of somebody else uh, within whatever sourcing that he talked about. When you saw this report, Mark, what was your immediate reaction? Uh, wow. Yeah, basically like, uh, <laughs> Kobe White, uh, Kobe White at the draft. Um no, I I mean, I think what was uh, so difficult in this entire thing is like seeing it go from where we were at, you know, a year ago to, to where it's at now. Um, I, I I don't I mean, saying I'm not surprised sounds like ass and I like I think the wording was surprising, um, but it culminating to here, you know, especially after we got. Um, you know, uh, Taylor talking about um, 
during a during a presser before what whatever game. Um, I can't remember which game it was, but you know, talking about how they needed to be more more focused and not as distracted, and it was very clearly like a we knew who exactly who he was talking to. And then Dylan has like the quote after the game, like, Oh, you know, I'm going to keep doing me. Like I I'm not going to stop being me. I don't want to misquote him, but it was along those lines. Um, and then obviously that continued to carry on. And um, yeah. So I, I do want to add too, um, as much as I, <sighs> don't love whatever the wording was from whoever decided to to put that out there. Um, like uh, not even that I don't love the wording. Like that's, that's just extremely strong wording without having your name attached to it. That's, that's what I'll say. Um, I, I do like, I, I don't know. I think that there's just, that stuff can be tricky um, with, with, with the non anonymity and who's releasing things. Um, but uh, I, I think people who are looking at this as, Dylan Brooks got scapegoated is kind of missing this just for the sake of a talking point. If we're being real, um, like I, I do very much think that it is fair to not love how that came out, but also worth noting, okay, Dylan was very much so a distraction. Uh, Dylan was also awful in this series and really struggled much of the season. Um, I would also point people to, I go read the Michael Cole story from over at commercial appeal who covers the Memphis Grizzlies. He does an awesome job. He wrote a really great story on this as well. Basically giving a lot more backstory to this. Dylan Brooks wants a bigger role than he had this season. Um, His usage really dropped this year. His field goal attempts dropped this year. Um, He gave very pointed quotes about how he doesn't want to be a role player, how he's capable of doing a lot more, how he could have had more plays run for him during the series that is very much not how I view Dylan Brooks in this capacity and what he's capable of or what he should have been getting uh, with Memphis. And I I think, you know, you and I both talked about how weird his role was this season, how it kind of got jerked all over the place. And especially like when they were dealing with injuries, I mean, he had to carry the offense at times and that was ugly. And um, it, but I also just want to say too, like it's, it's in a really weird spot of um, this team very much needed Dylan Brooks and relied on him a ton the last couple of years. And I think this is the first season where they really hit a point where it's like, you know, we need something different that isn't what you're bringing, um, at least not in the capacity that you want to. And um, yeah, so it's, I know that's a, a million different thoughts at the same time, but um, I, the last thing I would wrap out on, on that is I saw a lot of takes of like, oh, you know, I wouldn't, Sign Dylan, but I, I don't want Dylan Brooks on my team for you know any amount of money, this and that. And like, I think that Dylan 1000% needs to do some soul searching, like that is that goes without saying. Um, but I also think like, uh, like he is an all defense level defender. Um, I think with his shot selection reined in, um, that's still an incredibly impactful rotation player. Um, whether or not he wants to be that, that's that's up to him to find out. I, I wonder what the market's going to be like. I do think it's going to be a lot more than uh, a lot of people thought uh, or wanted to put out on the timeline today or just in speaking today. Um, and then the last, last thing I want to hit on, uh, just in general, I do wish that 
some of the language and stuff that got used and decisions here um, are things that we talked about with people who actually do bad things instead of somebody who just talks a lot of bullshit. Like, yeah, um, that's, I think what I came away most frustrated with about today. Like, um, okay, well, where is this for dudes who are very clearly doing things that are bad that get swept under the rug by everybody in every facet in, in basketball. Um, so yeah, that's, it, it just, it, it is that I, I don't want to say it is what it is. Cause that's too callous for me. Um, but yeah. I, I do think that's something that very much needs to change and be better. So the, the first thing that came to mind to me was, Hey, remember when Draymond green said earlier this season, the dynasty starts after you, not with you to Dylan Brooks. In a podcast. I forgot about that. Wow. That is unbelievable. Shit crazy. From Draymond green. That is some incredible trash talk. Uh, unbelievable. Just the king of our time. Draymond green. Uh, the second thing I thought of was that to Michael Cole story, obviously. And Dylan Brooks on Sunday was quoted as saying, I was just there to three and D shoot and play defense. I got way more to my game than that. I don't think he does on the NBA level, just to be real about it. I don't, I think he is a three and D guy that takes a lot of very difficult pull up mid range jumpers that just absolutely do not work for him. Uh, I think that he is not a good enough shooter on those shots to be taking as many of them as he does. Uh, Having said that, he is one of the best on-ball defenders in the NBA. And a team like Dallas should love him. Like, if I was Dallas, I would be trying to get a sign-and-trade for Dylan Brooks going. Like, I I would love that. That makes a whole world of sense. Uh, Give them all sorts of attitudes, some defensive energy, some aggression, the ability to move Kyrie off the ball, the ability to limit difficult matchups for Kyrie and Luka team like that would be great. There's a number of them out there that would be valuable. hundred percent. I think that Dylan Brooks will get paid by somebody this summer who that'll be. I don't know uh, what that number will be. I don't know. It could just be like a mid-level. I think that's a very real potential outcome for him. He is him just getting the mid-level from somebody. What I will also say is somebody who, works in this industry and reports and generally tries not to report. Frankly, I I tend to know more than what I say on things because I don't like the stress that comes with reporting, frankly. Um, A lot of the things that come across my desk or proverbial desk, my phone, let's say realistically do not necessarily have a strategic motive to them. And I think that often when reports like this happen, people try to ascribe strategy to things. And this, this isn't me saying that like from the Shams perspective, this is me saying this from like, you know, what camp perspective benefits from this. Right. Uh, I think Shams is perfectly reasonable to have done what he did here like this is not uh, i think shams did great here i have no no beef with him in any way shape or form he shams did what he is supposed to do in this job um people try to ascribe a strategic 
motive or goal to these reports often uh, because we're so used to, for instance, the NFL draft where the NFL draft is an absolute shit show. And these football teams, I think are just absolute like crazy people who try to smoke screen everything. And I, I don't really get why they do it. Uh, it, uh, it happens in the NBA smoke screens certainly happen in the NBA. Um, I don't think that everything is as strategic as people tend to think it is. Um, let me give you an example, right? I'm not saying this is the way Shams got it. I have no idea how Shams got this story. This is just me saying that a way that this could have happened theoretically, right? Of course, all of the players on the Memphis Grizzlies would be aware of this, that Dylan Brooks is not returning to the Memphis Grizzlies. It's not uncommon for teams to let players know during exit interviews that they won't be back next year. That's a reality of the situation. It is very possible that a player could have gone to their agent and said, oh, shit, man, Dylan's not going to be back next year. And then Shams finds out about it that way, right? Other reporters find out about it that way, and then they go about, you know, confirming it from multiple different angles in any way, shape, and form that you can confirm it as a reporter. Again, I I think that totally everything Shams did here is perfect. Um, But that's not like a strategic thing that that hypothetical example is not a strategic way of this news getting out, right? That's just like a player telling an agent like, Hey, yeah, this is hap- this is going to happen. And then the agent, you know, bullshitting with the reporter saying, Hey, yeah, like this is the thing that's happening. And then it kind of leaking out that way. Uh, I, in this case, it was strange to me to see that so many people immediately ascribed this as negative toward the Memphis Grizzlies. The way it came out was a little bit weird. And because Dylan Brooks is such a lightning rod, it became a lightning bolt of news coverage, right? And it became a storm. I don't think this actually benefits the Memphis Grizzlies at all for this to be out there. In fact, I think it could actually hinder their potential offseason plans because what they could do theoretically is they could try and involve Dylan Brooks in like a sign-in trade in some way. But with this being out there now, like is Dylan going to acquiesce to trying to help out the Memphis Grizzlies? Maybe not, right? Like that, that might not be a thing. If he wants to get to a specific spot that doesn't have cap space, maybe it will, but it might make that a little bit more complicated now. Typically leaks that come out, you know, in this circumstance, if you're trying to ascribe blame in some way, you would be ascribing that blame based off of strategy in some way. I don't think that it benefits Memphis for this to come out in any way. So I I don't know why people would think, you know, Oh, the front office, they they leaked this just to say a fuck you and a last, like screw you to Dylan Brooks. That doesn't line up to me. Just logically. That doesn't line up to me. 
And obviously it doesn't line up necessarily for like Dylan Brooks's side to want this out there in some way, right? You want to keep leverage against opposing teams to, even if it's true that Memphis is not going to resign Dylan Brooks, you want to be able to hold that card uh, over an opposing team because they have his bird rights and them having his bird rights means that they can exceed the salary cap to sign him, which means they can sign him to the biggest number. So doesn't necessarily help anyone here that this is out. So I say all of this to say, I don't know why there was a rush from media people to be like, Oh my God, why is this out there? Or like, Oh my God, the Memphis Grizzlies, they, they absolutely screwed Dylan Brooks here. We have no idea who the sourcing was on this story. I certainly don't. I don't want to ask Shams. Like, I don't want to know that. Shams wouldn't tell me, and he shouldn't tell me. Like, I think that there is such a rush to look for a strategic angle in reporting oftentimes. And there is such a rush to put on the tinfoil hat and go full conspiracy theorist in some way that sometimes like people try and have these ideas that are uh, not always true. And I don't know if something is true. I don't know what's true in this circumstance. I'm just saying that this news being out does not benefit the Memphis Grizzlies. (laughs) Like just straight up, they got shit on all day uh, from media people. And it like actually does not help their like long-term potential off-season plans. So why in the world, like, why is everybody jumping to that conclusion? I guess is what I would ask you, Mark. Uh, I mean, it just, <laughs> that's not typically how things get reported, you know, or not even like, or I should say like, that's just not typically the wording you see. Like that is uh that was different. So I think that's why people jumped on it. I didn't really know what to make of it when it first came out other than holy shit. You know, that's interesting. Yeah. Um, yeah. I, I don't really have anything else to add on that. Cause I don't exactly like your mission. I think there's a lot more ins and outs to it than um, I know about. So it's, it's definitely something. Yeah. And again, I, I want to be clear here. I think Sean's did a great job here. Like this is news. This is absolutely his job. Like, Shout out to Shams. Uh, him reporting this news is great. Like I, anything I say here is not about Shams giving the initial report. The initial report is great. It's about the reaction to the initial report and trying to ascribe these beliefs from other people. And I don't know why there was a jump to conclusion to shit on Memphis in this circumstance. Uh, when, it doesn't benefit them and we have no idea who the sourcing is in this circumstance. Right. That seems mm-hmm. logical. Yeah, no, for sure. Uh, Dylan Brooks, like do you have, do you have a fit for Dylan Brooks moving forward uh, that you like? Uh, at the moment, no. Um, I feel like it, you know, once that's the kind of thing where you're like, especially with how much things can change in the off season. I I need to to see it um, before I have a feel, but right now, no, I'd I'd probably say no. Yeah, 
it's not the easiest thing in the world to find like a phenomenal fit for him. Uh, I, I, I do wonder like, what if you put him in Miami? Like, I wonder if that culture like would actually kind of like, I don't know, kind of even it out a little bit in some way. I don't know. I'm just like spitballing here. I, I think Dallas like really fits. Like I actually really love that idea. Uh, that that was my one that I was like, oh yeah, this makes the world of sense. Like Dallas goes for it. But yeah, I, I, I thought the whole, I thought the new cycle today was a bit bizarre and kind of wanted to talk about it a little mm-hmm. bit more. Um, and I think that Mark's hundred percent right, by the way, the, the thing that was very strange was uh, it's not strange, I guess, to like, get off jokes at Dylan Brooks's expense. Dylan Brooks has been, he he is embraced being a wrestling heel at this point. Right. So like when you do that, you open yourself up to criticism, like undeniably, but I agree with Mark, keep the same energy. For instance, if miles bridges signs somewhere this off season, right? Like g- go harder at miles bridges by all means, please. Uh, based off of what he you know pled to uh, in his agreement. So uh, I agree with Mark wholeheartedly there. Hmm. Okay. Mark, do you have anything else you want to add before you want to go to bed? Honestly, I think that's it on my end. Um, not just cut us short, but yeah, no, I, uh, I don't have anything else to add on him. Well, I meant like any, any takes, any, any, anything you have to get off your chest at this point, Mark, before we leave at this point, any, any, any movie takes, any playoff takes, what do you got? Do you have, do you have something exciting or we can just go. That's easy too. Um, I watched super eight again. Uh, I yeah. loved, I, I, I love seeing, that was one of the movies I saw. I grew up like 10 minutes from a, uh, a drive-in, uh, theater when I was a kid. So that rules. I saw movies there all the time during the summer. Super eight. I went and saw that opening night, uh, and absolutely loved it when I was a kid. I still really liked it. This is the first time I watched it in probably five or six years. It was one of those things that I would always watch it when it came on, you know, network TV, but First time I really sat down with the intention of watching it again. And um, I think it was good, but it was like oddly one of those movies where I felt like I came away wishing it was longer, which I don't feel mm. often for movies because um, it's really good. And I, I love the story and I love the way that like I think there's really good performances in it, but also it's just like kind of rushed. I wish that there was more in it because I wanted yeah. to know more and get more from it. And it's one of the things where very much like everything with J.J. Abrams Um I just wish that I had gotten even more of the story. Um, And yeah, we never did. So I, you know, it's, it's been what, 12 years since it came out. So I'm, I'm under the assumption that we are not going to get anything, uh, anything new on that, but um, it would be cool. Other follow-up. I rewatched today before the playoffs started. Uh, I rewatched, the uh, 2006 star-studded classic "Over the Hedge" um, cinema. What, what is that? You've never seen "Over the Hedge"? It's incredible. Very good movie. It's a it's a DreamWorks production. Um, okay. Very good. Uh, it's I mean it's just it's a no nonsense 80 minute uh, animated movie that is tremendous. It's basically about. Bruce Willis. Oh God, plays. this came out when I was like 16. Jesus. Yeah. So that's probably why it didn't hit for you. Um, no. You I were like was, four. No, in 2006? 2006. How old were you? I, was, I would have been 
because I think when seven, it came out, I was maybe. eight. I was eight. I think yeah, when it came eight. out, but um, no, this was awesome. You're not that could, much younger than me. I yeah. always fuck around with that because I had a, I had a, I think I had the game on GameCube. They had like a game for it, and I had it on GameCube, and it was sick. But like, no. Long story short, uh, this raccoon who is very trickstery uh, is trying to steal food from this bear while he's hibernating. Turns out the bear's like a vicious killer. Uh, he, the raccoon ends up like fucking up with his food stash and he gets a week to, to recover it. And then, you know, runs in this other group of animals gets their help, uh, unbeknowing to them that he's going to take this food to the bear. Cause he owes him. Uh, it's like, it's, it's really good. It's funny. The cast is awesome. Highly recommend it's on Netflix. So I don't know if it's on Netflix in Australia, but recommend you're muted. I have American Netflix as well. I can figure out Netflix. I watched uh, Infernal Affairs a couple weeks ago on uh, Indian Netflix. It was the best. Um, interesting. I don't know that I will watch this, Mark, to be honest with you. Uh, I do. This looks very it, silly. It is uh, they're, very they're, silly. Whenever I'm trying to find something to watch, I'm sure I can find something that is silly, but uh, there, there are too many things that I can find typically that That's i would fair. uh sometimes i just need something chill to watch you know so i agree with that i do agree with that for sure um yeah i think that's all i got honestly uh yeah i, I don't have a whole lot else to say uh tomorrow next episode we will be doing a mock draft podcast with adam spinella spins will be back spins and i have not talked draft for god it feels like three or four weeks so we will be back tomorrow on YouTube, probably earlier than what we typically do, because Adam would prefer to spend time with his wife, I'm sure. Um, I would also like to spend time with my wife. So we're going to do that tomorrow. It will be during the day at some point, you know, evening, probably East Coast time. Friday, there will or what that'll be. What would that be? That'd be Wednesday in the United States, right, Mark? Tomorrow is Wednesday in the United States? Yes. Yeah. Okay. Thursday, there will not be a podcast in the United States. Friday, there will be a podcast in the United States. Saturday, there will likely not be a podcast in the United States. Uh, five days, you know, that was the goal for the playoffs, five days a week. Um, Sunday in Australia, Saturday, uh, in the US uh, my wife and I my wife's birthday is this week we're going out and like doing oh, the whole thing yeah um, we're gonna like spend a day out on Sunday which will be great and we're super excited about it uh, so no podcast Sunday we'll be back uh, Saturday in the US Sunday in Australia we'll be back Sunday probably with another spin show uh, draft playoffs who the hell knows at that point right I would imagine combine invites will probably be out by then I have a pretty good feel on who's invited and who's not, but I would like a full list before we talk about it. Um, I know probably most agents, but not all agents. So I've been able to get a like complete accounting of who is invited. Um, yeah. So that's the schedule moving forward. Podcast tomorrow, no podcast Thursday, podcast Friday, no podcast saturday in the united states we will be back again sunday after that so 
Keep it locked on the YouTube channel. That's the best place for you to know when we are live, when we are podcasting, when we're doing things. Please, by all means, by all means, subscribe. Hit that like button. Do anything you can to support the show in that way. Hit the subscribe button over on Apple, Spotify. It's the best way to know when we are live, when we're talking about shit from the playoffs, when we're talking about shit for the offseason, for the draft, anything like that. We're going to keep going. Um, I think that's about all I've got, though, Mark. Tell the people where they can find your work, please. Yeah, you can find me on Twitter at MG underscore Schindler. Uh, subscribe to my Patreon. That really helps me to stay active and, and keeping stuff going. Um, I have a couple podcasts that are linked in there as well. Um, I'm all over the place. But yeah, Twitter is the best place to find me. Totally agree. You should go follow Mark on Twitter, MG underscore Schindler. Uh, I released a top 100 board NBA draft today. You will be able to follow along with me as I make picks tomorrow on the podcast by following that board. You can get that board by clicking the link that I have posted over on Twitter and hitting that subscribe button once you get there. Go to The Athletics, subscribe on one of my articles. That is a terrific way to keep me employed over there. Uh, I enjoy working over there with those people, so it is very fun. Um, I will be back Thursday writing, I believe, as well. I should have a redraft of the 2022 NBA draft, a really, really fun project that i do at the end of every season going back and looking at different things we've seen from rookies trying to extrapolate future value out based on what we've seen it's very fun until next time though folks we will talk soon